It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Um, it's a little camera. Little camera. There's okay. a little camera over your computer. Hey, look at that. How's that? Uh, it's Drew okay. Friedman, warts and all. Huh? Huh? Let me know when we're going to start. <laughs> that's, that's the title of one of his books, Joe. I, I have this book. <laughs> I got, by the way, the most disgusting cover of all time. Give me a sec. Just give me a second here. I know. <laughs> ah. Okay, we're good. Nice sweater. There it is. Thank you. It's cold outside. Okay. Not here. Well, let's start by telling you how much I like Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> oh, oh, wrong one. Oh, sorry. This is the Tor Johnson guy. <laughs> I'm kidding. We, I'm kidding. You're one this, of my favorite artists. Um, uh, I don't Thank know you. how this happened. A couple weeks ago, um, whenever I first reached out to you, uh, I think we had a conversation with another guest that may not have aired yet. Was it Gilbert? It may have been Gilbert Hernandez. Um and, and you came up and I was like, God, yeah, we should get Drew on. And I came home and I sent you that email. And literally two minutes after I sent it to you, I got an email from Joe going, hey, we should get Drew Friedman to come on. Oh, that's and, great. And I wrote back, yeah, I just got him. So it's kismet. <laughs> it's kismet. <laughs> it's kismet. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson. And Joe Dante. It's a, it's a thrill to be talking to both you guys, and I'm going to clarify why as we're talking. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to this, and um, yeah, and I, I love the episode with Larry that you guys did last week, you know? Yeah, it was perfect. It was good. Hey, that was great, yes. So, no, it'd be hard to live up to that, actually. No, no, you'll do it. Well, actually, I think I think that thing is all about the ski bum trailer. <laughs> uh, yeah. norm, normally, Chris, you what? Christopher Jones, right? No, no, no. Zelman King. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, that no, was the a thing, great... The thing he sent with Christopher Jones on it was an ad for a non-made uh, version of the movie. Yeah, let's explain oh, okay. briefly. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, uh, Larry, Larry was sending around uh, uh, a trade ad for yeah. the uh, Ski Bomb starring Christopher Jones and directed by Bernard Kowalski. And that's, uh, as it turned out, not the way the picture ultimately went. And uh, so he sent us that, and um, that's what we're talking about. But but suddenly the ski bum with Christopher Jones actually makes sense. He's this sexy. You mean sexier than Zalman King? Lab- <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> but uh, normally when I do trailer clips on on our show here, I try to keep them to about twenty or thirty seconds. But that one was so rich. There isn't a line in it that that I mean, it's just an amazing, <laughs> amazing trailer. So I ran the whole thing. But we're not here to talk about the ski bum. Um, or Larry Karaszewski. <laughs> uh, we've got uh, Drew Friedman here, the great, 
I'm tempted to call you a cartoonist because I hold that in such esteem, but I don't know how you, but it's your, I haven't, you're an I artist. Haven't, I haven't pinpointed exactly what I do. And I, you know, I'm 60 years old and I still don't know what I do, but cartoonist, I'm happy with cartoonist, illustrator, um, portrait artist, caricaturist, figure skater, you know, whatever you want to, you pop, know, whatever. Pop, pop culture maven. Yeah, that too. That well, too. and there is, I, I gather there's also a documentary being made right now about you, which I kind of nails it. The Vermeer of the Borscht Belt. Is that's the, the uh, working, that's the, that's working, the working title. title. That's a great title. Well, right? that's only because of the Jewish comedians thing. But I mean, you, exactly. you, your work is so much more varied than that. Yeah. Uh, right. That pinpoints that. But the other working title, the other possible title is Jew Dots, which <laughs> Gil Gilbert, Gilbert Gottfried came up with. Whenever he'd see me years ago, because we, we've been friends for many years, he would just say, Jew Dots, here comes Jew Dots. So that kind of stayed with me. So that, that, that's another possible title. But, you know, we'll see. The filmmaker is Kevin Doherty, and he's been working on this film for about two and a half years, conducting interviews. And he, I give him access to my studio. So he's filming me in the studio with my Jewseum around me, which we can talk about at some point. And so he's doing, you know, I, I'm not involved in the process of the film, but he's doing a great job. The footage he's shown me, I'm really, I'm really happy with. So that should be out. Uh, Shout Factory's behind it. So it should be out oh, next wow. year, Fantastic. I think. Great. Are, are you going to do the cover? Are you going to do a portrait of Drew Friedman? I assume maybe, I'm not sure. We haven't even talked about that yet, but you know, I, I maybe I'll be involved in that part, but you know, we haven't, we haven't just... You know, as far as I'm concerned, just a big Tor Johnson head is all you need um, <laughs> to put it over. But, you know, we can talk about that. <laughs> well, I, I first became aware of your work. Actually, I'm going to confess to a crime uh, on the show in, um, I think it was mid to late 80s. When did um, uh, Living or Dead come out? My, my first book came out. Yeah. It was co-written by bro my brother, Josh. That came out That's in the mid 80s, 85. Mid I was... Yes, and uh, I was working at a B. Dalton's bookseller in Philadelphia, and wow. um, uh, I would rob them blind, basically. And I, I that was one of the last books I stole from them before I moved okay. out to California. That is a confession. Yeah, I think the statute of limitations is up. I hope it is. And I would uh, assume that's ironic that you mentioned that because my second book, Warts and All, yes, the cover was actually embossed. You know, the, yeah, the warts no, on the it's, cover. it's the most disgusting so, cover ever. Blind, blind people could enjoy it. You know? Yes. So uh, <laughs> that was that was. Fun. And my understanding of the economics of big corporate chains is you got paid for the book I stole anyway, so it's all right. Yeah, I'm not. I don't hold a grudge. Josh, you're from Philadelphia. I am from Philadelphia. Okay, so is my wife Kathy. Ah. So, yeah. I went to college in Philadelphia. And yes, that I knew. <laughs> back well, I back when it was back when it was a, a a great place with all these old movie theaters all over Broad Street and. Market Street, right. and, you know, the Grindhouse, Grindhouse Theaters, all I know they're all gone. There are no theaters in Center City. Well, the Walnut, the Walnut Street Theater is still there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a movie they, theater. That's a legit theater. But not, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Marx, but the Marx Brothers pay, played there in the 20s. That's uh, still standing. I did not know that. It, um, one of the things that I was, actually, this is no longer the case, but up until a few years ago, it boggled my mind that, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. We didn't drive. There were 40 movie theaters all within walking distance of each other. And as of a few years ago, they were all gone from downtown Philadelphia. And up until a few years ago, the only movie theater functioning in center city, Philadelphia was, um, a porno house. Ah, <laughs> that must be gone by now. It's right? finally gone, but it, it was, it was up four years ago. 
Yeah. Wow. That's good to know. That's nice to know. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, Drew, uh, we are, we are all uh, huge fans of your stuff. Um, uh, going back to National Lampoon, obviously you did some great stuff in Spy. I, I always loved the, um, the Paul Simon and, uh, um, David Byrne bumping into each other in Africa. And so did they, which is always (laughs) here. That's so David Byrne was somebody brought it up in an interview with David Byrne. He said, yeah, I really like that cartoon. And then Paul Simon wanted to use it when they released the 25th anniversary um, of uh, of Graceland. Yes. Uh, he wanted to use it in their booklet until I asked for some compensation. And then <laughs> I, never, I never heard from him again about that. The hell but, were you thinking? It's a homage. But it's always nice when people I've drawn like the work, you know. Yeah. And I'll mention, you know, I used to draw Harvey Weinstein a lot. And I, I felt bad about it. Like, geez, I'm going too far. This guy, he seems like <laughs> such a nice guy. <laughs> you know, I'm giving him these, the, the bad skin and the fat face. And, you know, I don't feel, so I don't feel so sorry about that now, obviously. But um, Did you ever hear I, from I him? Did hear from, I did hear from Harvey Weinstein a couple of years ago, and he actually enjoyed the way I drew him, and he actually bought a piece. So you oh. never know. <laughs> I wonder, though, I think people have to say that, don't they? Yeah, well, usually I don't hear from them unless they sue me, you know, which I, I've been sued once. Joe Franklin. That's right. Me. Yes, Joe. Yeah. But ironically, we became friends 25 years later. And he did. I don't think he remembered suing me. Uh, were, oh, what was, was <laughs> this part, the dwindling Joe? Well, he's shrinking. The he shrinking Joe Franklin. Incredible shrinking Joe Franklin. Incredible shrinking Joe Franklin. Right. Parody of Incredible Shrinking Man. He sued me the day it came out. But he also sued National Lampoon. So they covered the costs. Great. Um, Who won but, Years later, Joe became a fan of my Jewish comedian books and showed up at the Friars party we had for it. And honestly, didn't I don't think he remembered suing me. Uh, so we became friends. Did, who won the lawsuit? It was dismissed because okay. the judge, you know, who it never went to trial. But the judge said, well, obviously, it's it's a parody. It's in the National Lampoon, heavy metal magazine. Right. And nobody's really going to believe that the guy is shrinking. You know, <laughs> You know, he was very sensitive about his height. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, um, well, you thank- do you draw a great Schlitzy. I'll say that. Oh God, yes. thanks, Schlitzie. thanks. You know, there's a documentary being made about Schlitzy right now. I heard. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Guy in in Maryland is making it. Um, he wanted to talk to me, and then there's a graphic novel coming out about Schlitzy. Uh, that Bill Griffith. Oh, Bill Griffith, uh, finally, finally, of who who else? Yeah. Who better? Can you explain can you explain who Schlitzy was for some of our listeners who are well you want under, jo- jo- under jo- eighty? Joe jo- jo can explain or I could explain. Well, well, there may be some some uh, Schlitzy deprived people out there on the other end, but uh, Schlitzy was uh, a member of the cast of Freaks, is where I think the, the main fame came from. And Schlitzy was, uh, I believe, a female. No, Schlitzy was a male. Ah, well, there you are. But they put him in a dress. Yeah. Because he was uh, incontinent. Ah. So that was the easiest way to keep him clean. He was a male. He was Jewish. And his real name was Simon Metz from the Bronx. Well, you just don't get information like that on other podcasts. Exactly. And, and there was a, um, a char- an homage to Schlitzie on American Horror Story a few seasons yeah. ago. They had a character who was made up to. Yeah. Although that was a woman. Well, Schlitzie has a huge cult following. I think the Ramones used to. You know, That's right. Uh, yes. In, in rock and roll high school, I think there's a guy with a Schlitzy mask yep. and, and whatnot. Yep. So, but you know, Schlitzy's you know the, his day his day is coming now with the graphic novel and the and the documentary. And I've drawn him a couple of times, and you know, it's like he's really beloved. You know, he's yeah. like just 
you know, he's just, he's so, if you watch him in Freaks, he's just having such a good time. And that's really, you know, it's just charming to watch him in that. <laughs> uh, you also do a, a kind of out of left field, a great uh, Morgan Fairchild. For some reason, that's one of my favorites. Uh -huh. um, uh, it, was it a, a friend of yours or a roommate? Or no, well, it was a, a friend of jo my brother, Josh, and yeah. I from Great Neck, Long Island, who yes. like basically never moved out of his parents' apartment. He finally did. But so we did a parody of him just like more Morgan Fairchild falling in love with him all of a sudden. And becoming and his roommate. To, to move yeah. in with him. <laughs> Uh, that, that was, I think that was a national influence years ago. It's a glorious piece. Um, but, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, and we're here to, I guess, discuss, uh, what do you think, Joe, the, the movies that made him with the movies a, that made you? Yes. That's, that's um, that's, and also I should point out our mission. There's an article in the September issue of film facts magazine that you wrote, um, which actually kind of covers this, at least from a monster movie perspective. Uh, Drew wrote a piece right. about, uh, his favorite monster movies as a kid. Um, and I loved, I loved your observation about how well-dressed they all were. Yeah, I always noticed that, especially the Universal Monsters, of course. And, you know, quickly, like, Dracula was impeccably dressed, but the Frankenstein monster also had a nice blazer on. Yep. And, and Larry Talbot, you know, he wore that nice, like, it, the, the shirt looked pressed. It was usually tucked it's in. tucked in, yeah. Sure. Right. I mean, uh, the Invisible Man always, you know, had the ascot on it. They were all, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon was the first guy who was just, but he was naked. So, you know, you weren't really looking for a costume, except for the third film where they, they, they put him in an outfit. Well, and the monsters. Yeah. Well, and monsters, they bring him out as Uncle Gilbert, of course. Yes. And he's wearing an, he's wearing an ascot and <laughs> a lorgnette. And uh, yeah, he's got the derby on. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a great piece. I urge people Thank to you. seek glad, it out. Um, but anyway, you're, you're going to walk us through. a tribute to Zachary Lee. Sorry. Oh, yes. The issue, you know, the I did the cover and it was a tribute to Zachary Lee for his 100th birthday. It's um, I, somehow coming from Philadelphia. Our, our guy never gets the love that all you big city. Well, he was Roland when he was in the Philadelphia. Oh, no, but yeah. we had we had Dr. Shock in Philadelphia. Sure. Who was great. You and, had Pixan too. Uh, that's before my time. Remember? I don't. Pixan? No. And Sally Starr, I remember her. But I was on Sally Starr's show. You were? When I was a kid, yeah. You were on Sally Starr? I was. I was on Sally Starr's show. That's great. Show. Wow. Sally Starr was in, she, she was in, you know, the, the film, the Three Stooges film with Adam West, where they assembled all the uh, hosts. The Outlaws the, is coming. Yeah. So Joe Bolton's in there and, right. and Sally Starr. I am, I am so out of my depth here. Well, the, 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 the Stooges, the, when they had the resurgence, uh, it was partly due to the fact that they had a series of shows all over the country right. hosted by local uh, kid show hosts. Sure. And uh, to pay them back, I guess, to, to acknowledge that debt, when they made this Western, they they got all these people in and they put them in the movie. Right. I did not know that's yeah, lovely. That was essentially their last film, wow. Adam West was the, the leading man. But then in New York, of course, we had Officer Joe Bolton, you know, who would show the Three Stooges. And it was kind of weird dichotomy because, you know, he was a police officer upholding the law and he was showing these horribly violent uh, shorts. And so what was the message he was putting across? But, you know, it was fine. He was beloved. He seemed like a nice guy. Well, we had Wee Willie Weber in Philadelphia was our guy for Stooges fun. Uh, Willie Weber? Wee, Wee Willie Weber. Oh, okay. He was a very Willie, large Willie, man, actually. Willie Weber is Stephen Weber's um, grandfather. You know about him, right? I do <laughs> Of course not. We're about to find out. <laughs> Willie Weber. Oh, wonderful. The, he was the agent who discovered Jackie Gleason, Don Don Rickles, and uh, Buddy Hackett before they became famous, and they left him. But his grandson is Stephen Weber, who would also be a great guest for you guys. 
if you haven't had him yet. Oh, the actor. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, well, you've, you've brought us in this list of what you narrowed it down to 10. Did you say, or. Well, there's nine and there's one short. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's and a movie. These are films. These are films I loved when I was a kid and I still love them maybe for different reasons. Um, aside from one or two, which I I've seen more recently, but you know, that, that was based, that's basically the, the, you know, the theme there. I loved them when I first saw them, obviously, and I still love them, you know, for many of the same reasons, but, you know, maybe some different reasons now. Well, do you want to start with the one you love the least of the 10? And, oh, uh, I just, I, I'm actually starting <laughs> with the early, I'm early. Oh, the earliest, early. okay. Leading up to, um, so it's chronological. A march through time. Um, and some of these are seem like, might seem like obvious choices, but I, hopefully we can discuss things that maybe, you know, nobody's thought about before. So... The first one I thought of is March of the Wooden Soldiers from 1934. Here they come. Call out the guard. Break out the colors. Summon the Marines. Hasten the royal musicians. Thousands upon thousands of musicians. Strike up the band. And, you know, the, Laurel and Hardy seems to be having this resurgence right now, which is nice, um, with this movie coming out, which I haven't seen yet. It certainly looks promising. It certainly I, does, and uh, John C. Riley is remarkable. Yeah, as he is. The, it really Leonard, looks like Oliver Hardy. It's amazing, and Leonard Leonard, Leonard Morton, who I trust more than anybody, saw it, and I don't know if he loved it, but he said he gave it the ultimate compliment. He said, "Watching it, you forget you're watching two actors play Laurel and Hardy." Mm. You know, it sounds, it looks great, and I'm looking forward to it. But March of the Wooden Soldiers. Um, Joe, you would remember when they, you know, back in New York, New Jersey, they, they show that every Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, I look forward to that film more than Thanksgiving dinner. because it was like, you know, when you got to see that. And, and I, you know, I especially loved it for Laurel and Hardy, you know, their, their chemistry. But, you know, over the years, I still love them and I still love watching them. And I especially love watching Stan Laurel specifically. But now there's like little things I notice about it that, you know, that's, that are kind of disturbing in a way, like some of the um, animal cruelty, possibly, you know, which it didn't upset me when I was a kid. But now I look at it and I said, you know, poor Elmer the pig, when they have him tied up with that sad face where he's about to cry, it's like heartbreaking. And how about that monkey with the Mickey Mouse mask on? Yeah. And the monkey is struggling in certain scenes. And it's like <laughs> oh. he's trying to get up. And I feel like such empathy for him. It's hard to watch some of those scenes. Yeah. And, and the, the, the cat was easy because they just had a guy in a cat outfit, but the monkey was was really struggling. And that's upsetting, you know. It's but, it's it's hard now sometimes watching westerns, knowing how they got various stunts out of horses. Well, Charge, yeah. Charge of the Light Brigade is particularly egregious. That's the one that brought in the uh, the whole uh, uh, animal uh, humane society. Oh, well, that's creation. what did it. Yeah, that because that movie was there were so many troop wires and so many. I, I, oh. I think I think uh, some of the actors threatened to quit the movie if they didn't stop oh, doing wow. that. What, yeah, that would have been 1935, Okay. I, I, one of the reasons I love Larry Storch so much is because when he was on the set of F Troop, he was really kind to the animals. He like he gave them special attention, especially the horses, mm-hmm. you know? So I always knew that. But the other thing about March of the Wooden Soldiers is, um, you know, it's been, a lot of people have like read anti-Semitism into it. You know, the, the character of Silas Barnaby, you know, sounds maybe could be Jewish. And also the, the wooden soldiers, when they're the animated sequence, when they're marching in, they're really goose stepping. You know, if you watch mm. that, 
So it's it's kind of you know it, it, it's hard to you know so I don't really buy into it. You know I don't know why it would be, but you know it, it's it, there's things to read into that. Also, a little assistant to Barnaby looks like he has a yarmulke on, and the the fact that Barnaby's you know he's trying to like get this little blonde haired Bo Peep you know as his wife and it's like slightly disturbing. But I, I love the the Barnaby character especially because the guy who played him Henry Brandon was 21 at the time going to going to USC. So he was just starting out as an actor. And of course, he's in The Searchers as the Indian. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, really low key in that where he's over the top as Barnaby. So <laughs> one of my favorite parts of that. A man of great range. Well, he's competing with uh, a lot of uh, overacting. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly it on seems the, ju- like he's, the seems juvenile like he, leads. <laughs> he is. But he seems like a theatrical, like a college theatrical actor. Like he's like doing that on stage. Yeah. You know, at USC, and all of a sudden he's before the cameras at, at the Hal Roach studio. And, you know, I think he's great, but, you know, <laughs> he's the fact that he's 21 playing an old an old dude like that, you know, the magic of the movies. Yeah. I just, just saw, as an aside, I just saw the uh, the new Mary Poppins where Dick Van Dyke um, returns as the uh, old bank character that he plays in the original, only now he's not wearing makeup. <laughs> really? To look oh, handy, that's to look exactly. I was, because well, I was wondering what he's playing in there. Yeah, yeah, it's and the why, same character. And why doesn't Julie Andrews have a cameo? I wondered about that. I don't know. I prefer not to hazard a guess, a guess uh, while we're recording. <laughs> oh, I did a, I submitted a cover concept to the New Yorker last week. It was Robert Mueller as Mary Poppins floating down from the sky over Washington. <laughs> you know, for some reason they didn't go for it. I thought it was, I thought it was on target. But, oh, that's you know, great. <laughs> It's, it's it's just it's always a crapshoot with them, but you know I thought it worked. Well, maybe maybe Woman's Day will take it. <laughs> Someone said you should send it to Time, but you know it's like no Time commissions their own ideas and covers, yeah. uh, so it doesn't work that way. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs, so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So what's your next picture? Well, next one would be, um, you know, again, these are obvious, perhaps obvious choices, but I want to talk about maybe different aspects. Uh, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein. So we jumped to 1948. Oh, you mean um, the greatest movie ever made? Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. top comics, Abbott and Costello, petrified, but hilariously. Stop! Plus the 
dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. Plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. <laughs> That's how, that's when people ask me, what's your favorite film? That's usually my top pick, you know, for so many obvious reasons. Yeah. It just all works. Yep. Um, but um, the, uh, just the, the fact that they didn't want Bela Lugosi still amazes me. You know, that Universal didn't want Lugosi. They wanted the actor who, a really good actor, and I forget his name at this moment, but he was the guy in, in Nightmare Alley who played the, the drunken, um, the Joan, Joan Blondell's husband. Um, I forget his name offhand. And he would have been really good. But, you know, Belagosi's so perfect in that. It's like, what were they thinking? You know, why would they be resistant to that? <laughs> Maybe because he was getting a little old, but, you know. How, do you have any? Well, it was his last major picture. Um, and they paid him less than everybody else, as usual. It seems to be his, his, his career uh, mantra. Yeah. Just, just always give Bella, he'll do it for less. A little less. But, wasn't, uh, old, wasn't old mother, old mother Riley meets uh, the vampire? Wasn't that like his last major picture? Would you? I, not? I wouldn't call that a major picture. It, <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't. It didn't even really get distributed in America. No, I guess that was just for the British audiences. But yeah. you know, never, I've never seen that one. <laughs> uh, it's it's got a lot of old mother Riley in it, which is a problem. <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, I know it was a long running series, but. Does old Mother Riley hold up? Is that PC? I mean, <laughs> well, you know, she's played by really... she's played by a guy, Arthur, yeah. Arthur Lucan, who was his whole shtick was that he played this this character. And there's a whole a whole slew of Mother Riley movies that don't have Bela Lugosi in them to their to their disrepute, uh, and and I've, they're they're frankly a little hard to get through for us. I yikes. would imagine, yeah. So there's not going to be uh, like like the Mary Poppins revival. We don't see old Mother Riley. I don't think so. No, I I wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't buy the stock on that. That's the only one that people even remember because Bela Lugosi was That's in. right. That's right. No, you know, that's all it took. But but getting back to Abbott and Costello, I mean, yeah. you know, the great thing about that picture is that uh, which 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 Lou didn't want to do because he thought it was too gimmicky. Yeah, um, was that they played everything straight. Yes, and um, the the actors play the roles the same way they would have played them in a in the previous uh, Universal picture, House of Dracula. You know, everybody's serious and they're doing their thing. And and the contrast is just what makes it. I mean, and plus, it's really well produced. It looks gorgeous. It does. There's one, you know, everybody talks about how this the monsters played it serious. But there's one, like, brief second where Glenn Strange sees Luke Costello and goes, oh, you know, like, <laughs> kind of, it's kind of Herman Munster-ish. You know, very slight. But, you know, I, I let skate by. One of the reasons I love that film is that um, Bobby Barber, as like perhaps his longest piece of dialogue in that film. And I'm a huge Bobby Barber fan. Bobby Barber, for those of you who are not Abbott and Costello <laughs> completists, uh, is, uh, he, he was their factotum. Uh, Bobby was in every picture that they ever did. He was short, uh, bald. He was looked a little like Joe Besser. Uh, and uh, would get, he would get shtick done to him. Uh, and, and, and he wasn't really the world's greatest actor. And in fact, his rather large part in this picture is, is not particularly well acted. I, I would have to disagree. I think, you know, I don't see how, you know, it's like him up against Lon Chaney Jr. 
And he's asking, oh, have you seen Chick Young and Wilbur Gray? Seen him? I don't even know him. I think he did a good job with that. <laughs> you know, that might have been his longest piece of dialogue. In you know, I run the Bobby Barber Facebook group. On, on, <laughs> and you know, at first, when I when I started it, you know, people were kind of goofing on Bobby and and joking around and being a little some some were a little nasty in some way. And then his daughter got on, Catherine, and. You know, and then she started posting amazing photos of Bobby Barber dating back to the 1920s. He was in silent movies as a comedian with Lloyd Hamilton and um, and with Harold Lloyd and uh, and into the 30s. He's even in modern times, but briefly split second. You can catch him for a split second. One of the main reasons I watch TCM is just to catch Bobby Barber and things. <laughs> he just turns up for 40 years. And, in, and, and his last film appearance is To Kill a Mockingbird where you can see him between Brock Peters and Gregory Peck in the, in the courtroom scene. Now, you should, go, you should watch this later because you'll see them. He's sitting there between them. You know, he has no dialogue, of course, but there he is between Brock Peters and Gregory Peck in that final scene. So pretty amazing career, I think. <laughs> wow. They probably didn't use the take where he gets the pie in his face. <laughs> no. He was also on the, on the Abbott Costello show, TV right. show. Which is, which is a, a great distillation of Abbott Costello. If you ever want to just get a, a real feeling of what that kind of vaudeville stuff was. It, it, it's much more concentrated in the television show than it is in the movies, which, of course, stopped for music most of the time. And, you know, the, 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 Abbott and Stella are in, like, you know, 60% of their own movies. But in, in the show, they're the whole show. And plus, the supporting cast is really good. Uh, and the shtick is, it's just wonderful. I mean, they just do all of this, you know, the slowly I turned and, and all, all the classics, and they do them really, really well. It's all there, down to the bare bones. There's like hardly any set. You know, it's basically the street and their apartment. But you have Sidney Fields, and and then you have Joe Besser turning up, and stinky, you know, as Stinky, the the world's most horrible child. Yeah, it's like, and you know, I never thought he was a great stooge, but he's an amazing Stinky. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, he's another guy. It's just people are obsessed with that character, character Stinky, and we'll watch those shows just. To, my wife loves Stinky. Like she'll watch the Abbott Costello show, but she had just adores Stinky. You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's Joe Besser at his best. So, <laughs> so move, moving right along, yeah, we'll move along to insights um, into worlds. Well, it's you know we don't want to get too esoteric. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're past that point now. <laughs> so, um, I'm, the, the short I mentioned is Cuckoo on the Choo Choo, um, which is a Three Stooges short. From 1953, um, it's a shemp, of course. Of course, and it's one. It's, it's it's almost a fever dream. It makes no sense. It's a either a parody of a streetcar named Desire or or Harvey, which had both come out right before that. And it it sort of features Larry as the Stanley Kowalski character, but you know, shemp is like, of course, it, you know, shemp is the star, is the featured stooge at that point. And it just makes absolutely no sense. And Mo is like a rail. Uh, it takes place in a in a railroad car, and Mo is the railroad investigator who just shows up. And and Mo and Shemp are in love with the same two sisters, and and Shemp is obsessed with a, an invis invisible bird that uh, only he can see. And then um, they all eat Limburger cheese sandwiches, and a skunk gets in the and the the, the skunk. Um, uh, Shemp chases the skunk and then a, a razor, um, a electric razor falls down Shemp's back and he goes, he goes, this, does this wild orgasmic dance. And that's sort of it. <laughs> it makes no sense. But, you know, it's like something you never, I, I, when I first saw it, I, you know, I 
like uh, I didn't know what to make of it, and I still don't. Well, you had so. me at Shimp doing a wild orgasmic dance. Um. Yeah, it's like they just like whatever came to Jules' minds, Jules White's mind. They just like, oh, well, let's just do this, and those that couldn't have been a script, and it, you know, it, but it has a huge cult following. It's like you know, like anything. It's and, like and were you a kid when you first saw that one? I, I yes, I was a little kid. It was just in the rotation on TV. And there it was with no explanation by Officer Joe. It's like, you know, boy, <laughs> kids, this is going to be a weird one. So just stick with it. <laughs> and I, I loved it. And I, I watch it every once in a while and I talk about it. But, you know, it's you have to see it. You have to experience it to, you know, <laughs> to try to figure. I don't think it means anything. I don't think there's any explanation for it. But, but there it was. <laughs> I mean, do you remember your reaction the first time where you... I just well, loved it. You know, it's just like I, had yeah. no, I had no, you know, it's like if it was the Three Stooges, it was good enough for me, no matter what. You know, so <laughs> right. I love I love the Joe Besser ones when I was a kid, you know, even though like Mo started combing his hair back and they were just with, like guys in an apartment. Like, you know, they basically like just like fighting against uh, kitchen appliances. Those were their nemesis at that point, you know, uh, but I was fine with it all. You know, every one of them. <laughs> I, I sort of missed out on the Stooges at the right time because um, uh, my mother was a teacher. I would come home from school, and if she was teaching, I'd have to go uh, down the street to the Pope brothers' house and stay with them until my mom came home. And the Pope brothers were three brothers, um, David, Alexander, and Pumpkin. And they would watch the three Stooges, and they would do to each other what the Stooges did to each other. Uh. And it often ended in bloodshed and, uh, it, it was just kind of terrifying. So at the time when everybody else was getting to enjoy them, I was dreading, you know, <laughs> having to spend the afternoon in a hospital. <laughs> that was the problem the PTA had with the three stooges, the violence that they were, you know, uh, that the kids were imitating, but I never did. I just like saw them as cartoon characters. I didn't want to imitate them. Plus, you know, they were really, I mean, you know, their characters, they're incredibly stupid guys. Like, yeah. Why would you imitate them? <laughs> I, well, I hesitate to. Oh, especially uh, because he had at least the semblance of intelligence. But why is he like living with these two guys and sleeping in the same bed with them? <laughs> Can he do a little better? But to this day, I still, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I love, I adore Shemp. I adore Curly. He's so funny. He's practically from another planet. You know, it's like, I can't figure him out, but. I, I stare at Larry like I'm, I'm I center on Larry, you know, yeah. more than anything. It's just because he's always in the middle and he's not doing anything in particular. <laughs> makes the abuse. And he's sort of he's the audience's surrogate. You know, you can always identify with Larry, you know, when the other two guys make no sense. There's he, always Larry. He is kind of the linchpin, isn't he? Of the... Basically. Yeah. yeah. He, he Yeah. He, he holds them together. So the next film I, I know is like another, you know, it's a well of obviously you're going to bring this up. But, you know, and I know it's it's near and dear to Joe because of uh, he did he did his trailers. He did a trailers from hell on this one. But Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. How can I not? Um, That's true. Bella Lugosi finds the perfect subject to turn a gorilla into a goof and versa visa. <laughs> What, 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 are you, what are you trying to tell me? I, I don't understand a way. What, 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 what am I, dumb or something? Now don't, don't answer that. Now look, Duke Mitchell. I'm running this game. You understand? And I'll talk back. Yeah, now put it on, because we got to get out that door. Talk about it. It's true. When I, when I saw
I think you were I, meant to. I, I, I discovered them on television and before the movies, and they were complete. And, and speaking of, if you want to really get the essence of what their 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 act was, you have to see the TV, uh, the, the live TV kinescopes, mm. of what, which are, which are probably similar to what they did in nightclubs, which was just total anarchy. You never knew what they were going to do for any moment. And then, of course, the movies got them, and now they're into in plots, and right. so that kind of stuff all got refined. But uh, in uh, by the time I saw uh, Lugosi meets the Brooklyn Gorilla, which was called Boys from Brooklyn, when in the syndication title, uh, they took poor Bella. I mean, they took his name out of the title even when they sold it to television. Um, that I, I I didn't know who Lugosi was at that time. I only knew who who these two guys were, uh, these two Martin and Lewis imitators, and um, they were just they seemed to me to be just as funny as the real thing in the movies. Uh, plus, it had a gorilla. So, you know, wait. <laughs> can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. Sammy, Sammy was Sammy. pretty amazing. Like, right, you know, he was perfect. Pretty, And he was 17 at the time. But he really, you know, it's like you, you think you're looking at Bela Lugosi. And Duke Mitchell, like, didn't seem anything like Dean Martin. That You know, they gave him a pompadour and whatnot. But Jerry Sammy Lewis. was so amazing that, you know, Josh, you know that, that Bela can, can we? Can I jump oh. in for one second? You're just because we have audience who won't know. You're talking about Sammy Petrillo. Is that that's how it's pronounced, right? Yeah. Who yeah. who was almost a dead ringer for Jerry Lewis and was and was discovered by Jerry and, for his oh. for his show when he was sixteen. Jerry like met him on the street outside yeah. of you know you know when they were doing the TV show and brought him up and then they used him one time for about five seconds as Jerry's uh, baby and he he pops out of a suitcase and he doesn't do his own voice. Jerry like dubbed it in, of course, um, and that was it. And then you know he broke off from Jerry because he was lured to do this film. Jerry didn't really use him beyond that, although Sammy turns up with Milton Berle in a long segment, a pirate segment with uh, Basil Rathbone. Um, and Sammy turns up at the end as, as Jerry Lewis, like uh, Milton Berle unveils the, the girl at the end and it turns out to be Sammy make, screaming like Jerry. And also Eddie Cantor used Sammy too briefly in, in a segment. So that, that was really the height of his career, that and then you know making that movie. And then it was downhill from there. He was 17. He was basically a has-been. And then Duke Mitchell was the uh, the Dean Martin. Student. Yeah, they teamed they teamed these guys up, and then those two guys they went on tour a little bit after the movie came out, and then they broke up. And then Sammy had this like you know this life uh, going on till he died about ten years ago, where just like he just never achieved the heights. And he would play in strip clubs. He was in a couple uh, tiny little parts in movies. Brain that wouldn't die. I think he was also at a he he was the lead in a nudie. Uh, picture yeah yep he's a, yeah he is and it's just it's kind of sad but once again i run this the sammy patrillo facebook tribute group and um there's a book there's a, a biography of sammy being written by my friend dave abramson a, a massive biography of sammy's life which is pretty fascinating i think because you know it's just like you know again he was at 17 he had reached the height of, of show business basically and then it was all downhill after that but this book is coming out hopefully this year, next year. I hope to do the cover to it. And on the Facebook group, people were speculating about, well, who should play Sammy in a movie? And someone said um, Sean Hayes. Someone said Eddie Deason. And I came back. I said, well, Eddie, Eddie Deason, you know, he's great, but he's 61 now. And whoever plays Sammy should be, you know, you got to start when he's 16, you'd think. And then the guy who was writing the book said, you know, whoever plays, whoever plays Sammy Petrillo should also be the same actor who plays Jerry Lewis. And I said, yeah, yeah. that works. <laughs> that would be interesting. So, 
So, I, so like there is a, a revival of, of Schlitzie, there's going to be a huge Sammy Petrolo revival. And then there was a Duke Mitchell thing a few years ago, too. Which was yeah, well, he started making me all of a sudden making movies. Yeah. yeah. He did Gone with, uh, Gone with the Pope, wasn't that the name? Yeah. Of the movie? yeah. And, and yeah. Massacre Mafia. Style. Massacre Mafia style. Yeah, yes. which he starred in, starred in and directed. Yep. <laughs> so, so who says there are no second acts in American life? That's right. Yeah. I haven't seen those films. I know that, like, like I said, you know, you can find fans for for anything. They're they're fun. I know there they're are people who enjoy those movies. I, they showed uh, uh, um, the Pope one, Gone with the Pope, at the um, New Beverly a few years ago. No, the, the New Beverly will show almost anything. That's, yeah, no, it was. Uh, but I think somebody they were stored or something, wasn't that? The, yeah, I think somebody. Uh, did. Oh, it was about time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. They finished his cut. I think that was it. It was unfinished, and they put it together. I feel like the other side of the Pope. I think, no, I think it wasn't Bob Morowski involved with that. And it was um, very similar to what they just did to Orson Welles. For Orson Welles. Uh, anyway, yes. So what? So next. What's next, sir? What do you have for us? Well, Josh, you know, when, the, uh, we were, when I was compiling this list, I said, it's only fair I mentioned this film to you ahead of time because nobody's ever heard of it. He did. He know? slipped me this one early. So this one I slipped to, I slipped to Josh. It's called Haram Alek. And it's from 1954. And what it is, is a scene-by-scene remake of Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein from, from Egypt. It's the Egyptian version. So they hired these two actors to basically imitate Abbott and Costello. And, and the Abbott guy, they got a guy, an Egyptian guy, and they put a pencil-thin mustache on him. And he's pretty good. He's pretty close. And the Costello guy is doesn't look like Lou Costello, or, or he's not even fat, but um, he's, in, he's, very, he's incredibly grating. And, uh, you know, it's hard to deal with for, for 90 minutes. But the film, again, is a scene by scene remake. So they got a guy to play the Frankenstein monster. And then they have a guy who, to me, looks like Clifton Webb playing Bela Lugosi as Dracula. And, and then they change the script a little bit. Instead of having a Lawrence Talbot, they, they take the Dr. Stevens character from Abbott Costello and turn him into the, the Wolfman. You know, so... It, which doesn't quite make sense because he's a doctor. He's like performing. It's like, you know, he, how can he perform surgery if all of a sudden he's turning into a wolf man? You know, it's like, I guess he has to, it's like, it just, it just doesn't make sense. But that was their one, you know, editorial change in the script. But aside from that, it's basically the same film. And it's a nice looking film. It's like it, beautiful black and white footage. Oh, it's did, on Facebook. Where did you see this? It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Yeah. But this is no subtitle. When I was a boy. I had heard about this film for a while, and then all of a sudden it showed up on YouTube. And it's got a beautiful poster, a painted poster. It looks like, you know, a professional Hollywood poster. But it was, you know, made for the Egyptian audiences, and I assume it did well. And um, so there it is, Harem Elect. So have you seen it with subtitles, or did you watch the entire thing? In- I don't think you even need, you know. Oh, you know, he, know, he, knows, he knows what he I'm saying. He saw the original. <laughs> I knew where it was going, so I didn't watch it with the subtitles. Okay, because I couldn't find it. Really the same, it's the same film, but, you know, with different actors. <laughs> so the, the next film is again another obvious choice but it's plan nine from outer space I, I, it's like I, how could I leave that how out could you, uh, yeah. the, the Ed Wood connection Has, how many episodes of our podcast have we done where somebody doesn't mention Ed Wood we're, we're doing the next, next season I guess because we're taking a break actually this will be after that um, oh this season shit we've blown it I, I wanted to have a duck that would come down whenever Ed Wood gets mentioned <laughs> Uh, good idea. Yes. We probably time, use it every week. Ed is truly. I was made aware of this film was thanks to Joe Dante and his uh, column, Dante's Inferno in Famous Monsters. It's like, 
Uh, Plan 9 was listed number 39, worst film of all time, which was surprising to me because I had only seen photographs of it in the in the pages of Famous Monsters of Belagosi of a. Uh, Tor Johnson and Vampire just walking through the graveyard. Looked great. And it looked incredible. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I thought up until I read Joe's column that when I see this film, it's going to be the greatest horror film of all time, obviously. Bell Lugosi's last film and, and these scenes of Tor Johnson and Vampire. And but I didn't get to watch it till like when I was about 19. It was like hard to find. It was off circulation in New York. They weren't showing it anymore, although Chola Theater would still start with some footage of Vampira. But when I got around to watching it, it was around the time the Medveds came out with their book, right. um, the Golden Turkey book, and um, listing it as the worst film of all time, which I'll say I'll say doesn't make sense because their first book was the 50 worst films of all time, right? Right. And the Plan 9 is not even mentioned in that film. It doesn't come in. It, it, there's nowhere in the top 50. But at the end of that book, they said, look, send us in your you know suggestions for your worst films. And Plan 9 overwhelmingly won, you know, the mail, uh, as far as the mail they got. Plan 9 came in number one, so they featured it in their next book. So it's obviously not the worst film of all time. It's like there's so much to like about it, you know, of course, as you guys know. Um, and there's a lot of beautiful footage in there. And, you know, and then, you know, screenplay wise, it's a little inept. But, you know, it's, it's just hard to not enjoy that, you know, over and over and over. And uh, I never get tired of it. Yeah. We should we should have the medveds on. We could have both of them on. I'm, we need I'm, one more microphone though. I'm kind of kidding. <laughs> have, we, have we not talked? Uh, that book was so annoying. <laughs> well, they got there was it's, misinformation. It's full, of, even, it's full of misinformation, and and some of the movies, some of the movies I don't think they'd actually seen. I bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. How dare you! They couldn't have seen Bride of the Monster because they say a tour as gentle as a kitchen came out of Bella's mouth. He does not say that. He says clearly kitten. Um, they, were making, they were making things up, assuming people would never see these things. I don't think they anticipated these films would be out on video and, and beyond. Sure. But I think they were mainly were they were putting out humor books. They were yeah. supposed to be funny books. They weren't really like, you know, insightful books about movies. So. You know, I enjoyed those books at the time, but when I finally got, uh, saw the film, that film in particular, and the others, you know, it's like certainly not the worst film of all time. And to my mind, last year at Marindad is the worst film of all time. <laughs> well, that's in their book. That's in the book? Yeah, I think it might be. Um, yeah, it's in the book. That's funny, though. Yeah, when I think back, there there is that sort of slow realization, because those books were fun. And then as you see the films, you start to realize these guys are full of shit. Well, it was early psychotronicness, you know, yeah. I mean, that was that, that, that some, the appreciation of that kind of filmmaking, you know, uh, sort of crept up and, and these, started, these yeah, things, started building up. Yeah. And after I saw those films, that's when I started using Tor Johnson as a regular character in my work. Mm -hmm. and, and then I did a set of Ed Wood cards, you know, trading cards. Um, and that's all led to, you know, the wonderful movie that Scott and Larry wrote. Um, and the rest is history, as we know. Yeah. So, but I was there at the beginning, you know, when nobody knew who Ed Wood was except for you guys and me and a few others. Um, but it's like when, when I did one of my first one, my first tour, of Johnson, I got a letter from a, a guy named Eddie Gordetsky. And oh, I know Eddie. Eddie said he wrote. He said like I didn't even know anybody even knew who Tor Johnson was. This is around 1979. He said wow. like you know I can't believe somebody else knows who Tor Johnson. And I'm thinking like who doesn't know who Tor Johnson is? <laughs> I mean I hadn't seen Black uh, Plan Nine, but I of course had seen The Black Sleep and The Beast of Yucca Flats. And 
you know, some of his other great uh, appearances. Now there's, but, a, there's a picture that, that, that pales in, next to yeah. Plan 9. <laughs> yeah, this film is amazingly bad, but Tor is good. He gives it his all. He does, especially with the, in the scene with the rabbit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's poignant. Well, to him doing his Lenny. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, it's sort of sad. I just like there's always new discoveries with Tor. I just saw there's a Peter Gunn episode with Craig Stevens. It's a brief, like two minute segment, but Craig Stevens all of a sudden they, they throw him into this padded cell, and Tor walks in. It's uh. 1960, and it's like Tor is. I mean, obviously he's like he's the lumbering. You know, uh, his mouth is agape, and and he like starts throwing Peter Gunn around like a wrestler. But you know, it's just intense. It's just, it's on YouTube as well. He shows up in a lot of uh, pictures from the late 40s, early 50s. And he was on You Bet Your Life. Yes, he was on You Bet Your Life. That's right. It's yeah. a great he episode. He's yeah. promoting uh, uh, Night of the Ghouls. Mm. Uh, Which unfortunately didn't come out. <laughs> but it was like his last hurrah, I suppose, as a movie actor. Yeah. Have you ever heard from any of his relatives or anything about... Uh... No, I think they're gone. I, I yeah. went to visit his house in Silmar, California, um, years ago, his house, uh, where they filmed plan nine, Bela Lugosi lived in, it was the, uh, his character lived in that house. That was oh, Thor's house. Okay. I went to visit it with uh, my friend who grew up in Silmar, um, and took some photos in front of it. And, and there was a, a Mexican guy living at the house in the front yard. He was like gardening. And I walked up and I said, you know, there was a famous actor who used to live here, Tor Johnson. And he just looked at me blankly. He had no idea what I was talking about. So, uh. It was a nice little moment. <laughs> but after, after, so I'm, I'm mentioning The Nutty Professor because I think it's the first film I ever actually saw in a movie theater in oh, 1963. Wow. I would have been about five. And I saw it at the East Hampton Cinema. My parents, um, we used to rent houses out there in the, in, the, in the early 60s. So I think, I believe that's the first film I ever saw. And, and I, that's a memory I, I, I think I can confirm. So I'm proud of that fact. Um, and there's nothing, you know, I can really add to that movie. I guess it's his best film. Um, you know, I have theories about, uh, you know, people have said that um, he was basing Buddy Love on Dean Martin. I don't buy into that. I don't think the, the character has any relation to Dean Martin. No, he has a lot more relation to Jerry Lewis. Yeah, I think he was yeah. basing it on like sleazy types he had run into and himself. Yeah. Um, and then I think he was also obsessed, seems to be obsessed, obsessed with Stella Stevens, so much so that he named the character after her. And then the, the, the theme song is Stella by Starlight, of course. And then he was so upset and infuriated that Dean Martin used Stella Stevens in a Matt Helm film. He never talked to her again, or at least for 20 years. <laughs> you know, Ka Kathleen Freeman told me that uh, she was very much... Uh, in his orbit, he thought she was wonderful, and he put her in all these things. And then uh, at one point, after they'd worked together for a number of years, uh, he came up to her and asked her what he thought, what she thought of whatever it is he had just done. And she actually told him, she had a couple of criticisms, <laughs> never talked to her again. <laughs> well, I got, to, I got to talk to Jerry a few times, like later in his life. He, I, I did some artwork, you know, featuring him. And he loved one particular piece I did for the New York Observer. So he called me, the, the editor of the Observer said, Jerry Lewis is gonna call you. So I was so nervous, but we had a great conversation. And you know, we, he was really curious about what I was up to and, and how I, what my process was and things like that. But I was so nervous for two reasons. Um, I had done for, Spy Magazine did a piece on the day the clown cried back in the eighties. I was the illustrator of that piece. I know Jerry hated that piece. He went on a record. But so I was nervous he, that was going to come up. 
you know, and it didn't. And then I was nervous in, in subsequent conversations that somebody was going to tell him that, you know, Drew Friedman is the one. But it never came up. He never he never realized that, which was fine. But also talking to Jerry, you know, I made sure there were three things I never brought up in the conversation because I know that the phone call would have ended. The first was, well, I didn't bring up Dean Martin because I never, you know, you don't know what his mood might have been. I didn't bring up the day the clown cried um, for obvious reasons. And I never brought up Sammy Petrillo until my friend Dave Abramson decided, you know, when he was writing his book, he said, like, you know, it would be so great to talk to Jerry. I said, let me let me try. Let me like just bring up the subject with Jerry. And so I did. I said, my friend Dave Abramson, Jerry, is writing a book about Sammy Petrillo. Jerry says, why would anybody write a book about Sammy Petrillo? You know, it's a pretty amazing story. He's like, you're his idol. And then he wanted to become you. And then he moved on. He said, okay, I will, for Drew, Drew, for you, I will talk to, I will talk to Dave. So Jerry actually took, took part in this, in this, uh, you know, in this book. He like talked to Dave for a few minutes about Sammy. And, you know, it was basically, you know, I was like, well, I discovered this kid, this punk kid. And I used him on my show, and then he went off and made a movie with another guy, and I never heard from him again. That was basically it. But, you know, so Jerry's input will be in this book, which is exciting. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we're winding down. I just wanted to mention a film which I I, I couldn't believe when I was a kid, and Gilbert Godfrey shares a love of this film. We talk about it. It's called Return from the Past from 1967. And you might not know that title, but it was also known as Dr. <laughs> Dr. Terror's Gallery of Horrors, also Gallery of Horrors, also The Bloodsuckers, also Alien Massacre, also The Witch's Clock. And when it came out as The Bloodsuckers, all within the same year, I don't know why they kept changing the title on it. It was The Bloodsuckers, and they did it with another film called The Liver Eaters. So that predated wow. I Eat Your Skin and I Drink by a couple of years. But this film featured Lon Chaney Jr. and John Carradine. Um, you know, Carradine narrates it and he's like, obviously he's bored. He's walking through it. He's holding a cigarette while he's narrating between his fingers. You're not, you're not supposed to see. And my theory about Carradine is he was kind of the, the Henny Youngman of horror movie actors, meaning if you pay him, he'll show up. You just pay him his price. He'll be there. And with Henny, you know, you paid him a thousand dollars. He would show up at a bar mitzvah, at a wedding, at a party, whatever. You just pay him his price. So <laughs> John Carradine, the Henny Youngman of actors. There you go. <laughs> Well, he did. Yeah. Do you remember um, in the early days of VHS, he hosted uh, one of the first, it was a compilation. The Best tape. of Sex and Violence. Best of Sex and Violence. put together by my friend Ken uh, Dixon. Really? Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. And I remember, and, and his two sons show up at the end for yeah. some awkward badinage. But uh, oh, did you ever, did you ever use him in, in, was. He was in the howling. He's in the howling. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It's like, I, he was uh, as uh, I was. I was thrilled to get him. I mean, obviously, he was taking every part that was coming down the pike at the time. Yeah. But um, I, don't, I don't think he said no. But he was. I remember he was great in that, and also in the Sentinel. And he just basically sits in front of the window in that. You know. Yeah. yeah. And but he was good. I mean, he was good. He was. I thought he was a great actor. I think his performance in Grapes of Wrath is one of the best oh, performances yeah. in American cinema. Uh, and he had a, he lost, had a lot of money. Lost a lot of money. Uh, his wife died and his house burned up and, you know, he, he's, he's had a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh yeah. service in his life, but, uh, but he was a pro and he showed up and he knew his lines and, uh, he, <laughs> on my movie, he, he, he showed up and he was, he was, 
he, he brought these cookies, you know, with him. And I said, well, why are you bringing cookies? And he said, well, these are the cookies I like. And, he, and I said, well, we have cookies. He said, well, you don't have these. And so these are, these are the ones I like. <laughs> so he brought them with fine. So the next night he comes and he's, he, he's got a blanket. And I said, what do you have a blanket for? And he says, well, you know, the, the heat's been off in my motor home. And I, I said, well, how, how long? He said, oh, since we started. I said, why didn't you just tell us, you know? And he was so used to working on really, really low-budget movies mm-hmm. where nobody gave a shit that he just assumed that, you know, he, he was, it was up to him to make everything happen. He was a really a, a lovely guy. I, I, I really enjoyed the time I spent with him. Yeah, I would imagine. Wow, that's great. Just like, you know, watching the Munsters, and he would show up as Mr. Gateman on that. Well, he was supposed to be... Uh, the, Herman Munster. Oh, he, was he? I'd... Well, he didn't. He didn't get the job because Jerry wouldn't let him out of the Patsy to go to the to the uh, audition. Oh, really? And, wow. Uh, and so he didn't get the part. It all comes back to Lewis. It all comes back to Jerry. Peter Laurie's last film. Yeah. What a way to go. <laughs> well, as part of, as part of an ensemble with no close up. Got those amazing actors in that film. You know, uh, Keenan Wynn and yeah. Everett Sloan and Phil Harris. And, you know, Phil, they're basically standing around waiting for a script, you know, a good script to, you know, but it's just not there. No, like, but it's got a great ending. It's got his <laughs> well, yeah. Pirandello ending. <laughs> That's right. I, I, you know, people, you know, with Jerry Lewis, you love him or you hate him. You know, there's no in between. I really believe that. But, you know, so. I've, I I've a- found that if you, if you, I've, I've gotten people through with the nutty professor that's sort of a gateway drug to jerry i think that's an easy one you show them that and then, and it breaks down their resistance and they right. can start well there's also jerry there's also serious jerry you know what? uh the wise guy program that he was on oh, and so uh, the scorsese movie yeah. i mean he he really was a good actor when he was yeah. not being jerry yeah. I love it all. Like, you know, I love the, the, the telethon Jerry and the serious Jerry and, and the talk show Jerry from the early 60s and the movies and the Martin and Lewis Jerry. It's mm-hmm. like I have friends who like who loathe Jerry Lewis, but they love Dean Martin. So they're willing to watch a Martin and Lewis film because they love Dean. But it's like, you know, that's why comedy teams are good, because, you know, if you don't if you're not crazy about one guy, you know, you, <laughs> chances are you're like the other guy. So, you know, that they kind of work. And then if you have three of them, like the Ritz brothers or three stooges. It's like, you know, chances are you're going to like one of those guys. Well, the Ritz brothers, I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a rough one for me. Well, every old comedian talks about Harry Ritz. Like he was just the epitome. He was the best. Even Jerry Lewis talks about Harry Ritz, like his idol. You know, it's like, does that come across in the movies? I'm not so sure. (laughs) It's like, it's it's like, yeah, if you have to like all three, you know, I like the Pussycat song from the Goldwyn Follies. That's that might be about it. But you know, I know people are passionate about the Ritz Brothers. So I prefer Olsen and Johnson. <laughs> hard to compete against. You know, it's like you had the Ritz Brothers and the Marx Brothers. Who you know, it was kind of hard to compete as far as brother acts go. Yeah, you know, that's a tough one. <laughs> I like Clark and McCullough myself. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> We're getting in the weeds. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a little obscure. So the last two on my list are, are two, uh, I'm going to put these, these words in quotes, comedies from 1968. And the first would be Skidoo. Oh, which, oh, Skidoo. Again, you know. It's uh, got that song. It's skidoo. got her singing that song. It's, it's, it's maddening. I, it's, <laughs> got her opening the film. Yeah, she's singing it. And then you have Harry Nielsen closing the film. Singing um, the credits. Singing the credits. Singing the credits yes. Including the gaffer and the best boy and all that. Uh, 
Well, when you get a when you get a whimsical guy like Otto Preminger, Otto. you know, doing <laughs> doing comedy, doing acid comedy, a period of you know, start I guess starting with Stanley Kramer, where they got these guys to direct these epic comedies that, who had never directed comedy before. So well, know. but but in the Mad Mad World, it 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 works because the the cast is so great. But uh, yeah. in Skidoo, which the cast is also very good, is just a big turkey. <laughs> it's just so hard to watch. It's hard to watch, and it took me a while to get to it. Not till it came out on VHS, and people started sending me copies. But it's fascinating for a couple of you know, for obviously a few reasons. It's Groucho's last movie, and he he's wearing a bikini uh, as God. Yeah. It's just not not funny. You feel sorry for the old guy. Yeah, he was so desperate to be relevant at that point, and you know, uh, but. It just doesn't work and you feel bad. But Jackie Gleason just seems so angry, you know, throughout the whole film. Like he obviously hated Otto Preminger. He didn't want to be there. He hated John Philip Law. The the look he gives him is, is John when, when he's a hippie. He just looks like he wants to kill him. At one point, I think he smacks him or punches him. And it looks like it's he really like means he really it. He really did, yes. He just really <laughs> looks so vicious. Like he just does not want to be there. <laughs> But, you know, he was pretty game with the LSD scene, I think. You know, he went along with that. But it's a, it's a hard film to watch. It's and painful. especially Carol Channing when she does her striptease. Oh. And, and the song. Once you hear that song, it'll take you a week to get out of your head. It's yeah. Painful. yeah. Get her, that out of the way early on. But, but what's, I, the, what's the other one? I'm glad I saw it. The other comedy, which is, you know, which is funny, is the comic with Dick Van Dyke. Um, oh, that which is I did see it. I did see it at the movies when it came out in 68. I was nine years old. It played on a double bill with the Desperados with Vince Edwards and Jack Palance, which was not bad. And, you know, it was the kind of film that was ignored. The critics ignored it. Carl Reiner directed it. But it, you well, know, the studio, reason, the studio kind of messed it up because they they insisted that it be a PG. Ah. Uh, and apparently there was a lot of material about his his life, uh, the character's life that just got whittled away. And um, I think it's a. a, a you can see it when you watch the movie. You can see these abrupt jumps uh, that I think there was a much better movie in there than they were able to get out. There is an abrupt jump because I think it goes from 1929 to 1968. You know, and what happened in between, they don't explain. Yeah. Like, obviously, he screwed up his career. But, you know, they jumped to 68. And the later footage is my favorite when him and Mickey Rooney are the old men walking up and down. Yeah, that's, that's great. That, the last part of that picture is really good. And, yeah. and it's, it's very poignant. It is when he's in front of the TV, dripping eggs down his chin, soft-boiled eggs, and he's watching one of his old shorts. Yeah. It's like I think all that works. All our all our futures. <laughs> yeah, like a premonition. But it's the early scenes with Michelle Lee. It's like you're kind of watching Robin Laura Petrie. They even sound like Robin Laura. But one critic pointed out it's like Robin Laura Petrie gone sour, which is you know they. And also one of the, one of the little pet peeves is it's nineteen. It's it's the late twenties, and Dick Van Dyke has sideburns, and Cornell Wilde, his hair is like nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, and also the the uh, the the Billy Bright comedies uh, that we see, the black and white comedies, are really not as well done as you would hope. They're 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 not really convincing as uh, as silent movies. Whereas whereas other other filmmakers have been been able to imitate that much better. My guess is that's why Carl Reiner and Dick Van Dyke wanted to do that, to be able to recreate those silent yeah. films with Dick Van Dyke starring. But, you know, the, I don't know if they work very, you know, the whole film is like, it's problematic, but that those last scenes, I think, and even when he's on with Steve Allen on the Steve Allen show, mm -hmm. you know, doing the whitey white commercial, 
It's like that. The last 15 minutes of that film is to me perfection. Yeah. You know, aside from Cornel Wilde and Michelle Lee showing up with, with they're aged, but they're just their hair has been whitened. That's basically <laughs> for the funeral. Even when I was a kid, I said, "Nah, that's not working for me." <laughs> that is my list. Ah, that's a that's a pretty good list. Hell of a list. I uh, uh, I'm 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 I feel like I just got to witness an amazing conversation between. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two serious scholars nerds obviously but yes i thought we'd have fun with that I'm, I'm definitely um i have gotten into stooges later in life and i have the giant box set and i'm not i'm i'm definitely going home and checking out the one you were talking about uh, yeah check that out 1953 it's a shem i yes but take drugs first um uh, you don't need, you don't need drugs, drugs yeah you not for the drugs. stooges uh, or for this show i like to think <laughs> Well, thank you, Drew. Uh, Drew, thank you so much. Um, appreciate you, you bearing with the technical issues, and uh, uh, it's just—it's uh, been a thrill to have that, you. That was the—that was the fun part. Yes. <laughs> now I have Skype. Now I'm—I'm I'm all set. I have oh, it's Skype. good. It's—it's it's a good thing. It's—it's—it's it's, it's your, your future. Skype is your future. That's right. Yeah. Took a while, but here I am. Okay, guys. All right, bye. All right, skidoo. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Ugh. Oh my God, I could have gotten through this day without thinking about this good day. <laughs> it's the worst goddamn movie. Our show is recorded in Hollywood, California at the crossroads of the world. We are the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is Don Barrett, who also wrote, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.